It's time for Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers, Legally Speaking. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Always good to be here. Interested in your thoughts, because one of the things you and I have discussed any number of times over the years that we've done this segment is that the political communications and sometimes the political objectives of a piece of legislation can sometimes be at stark variance with the actual legal text of a statute and how that will be applied by the courts. I think we have another example today. We do. Uh, perhaps it's the reality distortion field of the press conference. Uh, but uh, the uh, indeed that happened again last week. Uh, I think many listeners would be familiar with the uh, stories that uh, followed uh, the government announcement uh, following the introduction of what's bill. What is Bill C or sorry Bill Thirty Four, entitled the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act. Um, and in the press release for that, uh, and all the all the discussion I heard about it uh, in the public, uh, included a, a suggestion that the legislation, this is right from the press release, it says the legislation, if passed, will ban drug use in public and recreational-focused spaces, including, and then it lists a bunch of things, six meter radius of building entrances, six meters of bus stops, 15 meters of playground spray and wading pools, skate parks, parks, beaches, and sports fields. So looking at the press release and how it was discussed, uh, I think people would quite, quite reasonably believe that, in fact, this legislation would ban the use of illegal uh, substances um, in those areas. Uh, and indeed, if you just have a very cursory look at the legislation, you might come to the same mistaken conclusion. Uh, because indeed, Section 3, under the heading Consumption of Illegal Substances, says this. 3.1. A person must not consume an illegal substance in any of the following areas or places. And then it lists a bunch of places which generally conform with the press release and the talking points about this legislation. You have to keep reading, though. Uh, and uh, all the way down to Section 8 of this piece of legislation, uh, which says in 8 sub 2 says this, Section 5, the General Offense of the Offense Act does not apply to this act. Hmm. Well, what might that mean? Well, what that means is that we have in British Columbia an act called the Offense Act. And the, the Offense Act provides that if you don't follow uh, a... Uh, uh, piece of uh, requirement in a piece of legislation, you could be charged with an offense for not doing so. It's kind of what gives it some meaning as opposed to sort of a aspirational statement of things you might hope would happen, right? Hmm. That's sort of why that's the power to do something about it. If somebody just says, well, that's fascinating. It says that I can't consume an illegal substance by a spray or wading pool, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so this piece of legislation says that does not apply. Now, huh. that's not completely unique, yeah. but because some legislation will have its own set of penalties set out in it, right? Yes. Rather than relying on the general provisions of the Offense Act, which would make it an offense to not follow a rule in any piece of legislation. Uh, and so, for example... Uh, the Liquor Control Licensing Act, right? Uh, it has its own scheme of penalties that are set out in it rather than relying on the Offense Act. So if, for example, somebody is drinking in the park, uh, well, there's a section for that, right? And yeah. a range of penalties set out for that. However, in this particular piece of legislation, Bill 
34, the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act, it only applies to one section of the act. And this comes from, this is set out here in sec- the, under the heading of fence at section 8.1. And it says, a person who fails to comply with a direction given under section 4 commits an offense. Hmm. Well, what about section 3? Yeah, <laughs> The one that weird. says you can't do these things. It's not included. Huh. It's not an offense to to do those things. It's not an offense to use illegal substances on a beach, sports, playing field, in a park, on a playground, any of those places. So what is Section 4? Section 4 is this. If a police officer has reasonable grounds to believe that a person is consuming an illegal substance in an area described in Section 3, the police officer may direct the person to do one or both of the following. A, cease consuming the substance, or leave the area. So Hmm. the legislation does not make it an offense to uh, use drugs in a park, playground, skate park, any of those things. The only thing that it makes an offense is that if you're, in fact, doing that, you're on the children's play swing using fentanyl, you haven't committed any offense unless and until a police officer shows up and tells you, hey, Stop using fentanyl on the swing set, right? And then, only if uh, you then still continue to use the fentanyl or refuse to leave. Hmm. Nothing, no offense has been committed until that happens. So, if you had somebody who's sitting on the merry-go-round smoking crack, right, (laughs) and you you wander up to them, hey, you can't be here. There's no crack smoking on the merry-go-round. The legal response would be, well, that's fascinating. I don't seem to be doing anything wrong, (laughs) right? (laughs) And in fact, they wouldn't be unless and until a police officer drives over and tells them, stop doing that on the (laughs) merry-go-round. So the offense is failing to leave after being told by a police officer, not the drug use. That's right. (sighs) So this legislation does not prohibit any of the things which the press release would clearly cause you to think they're they're prohibiting, right? (sighs) Uh, And even a very cursory read of it, you would think, oh, yes, look right here. It says you must not do these things. But you then put in the special (laughs) section eight, say, well, that's not an offense. And then you haven't bothered to make it an offense under this piece of legislation. So it appears to have been intentionally drafted to make it almost toothless. Uh, And then Hmm. the other thing which is interesting is that if you're on the merry-go-round using fentanyl and the police show up and they tell you stop doing that, and if you don't stop doing it, right, then at that point there is some authority here for the police to seize the substance you're using, right? If those things have all happened, right, police have shown up, they've told you, you haven't done it, okay now, but they can't seize it, the police can't seize it. If it was prescribed, if it was provided to you by way of a prescription, and of course some people would have that the, yeah, they the would. supply system. Right? Yeah, those people, the police cannot take the drugs away from the non-compliant person on the merry-go-round uh, if they got the drugs pursuant to a prescription. And the challenge there is going to be some police officer showing up at 3 a.m. in a park with somebody there doing something or whatever at the school grounds and trying to figure out is that something you got from a prescription. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, and so that's a secondary issue. But the principal one here is that uh, there isn't a power to stop this. So somebody like the school principal going and saying, you know, get off the playground with your drug paraphernalia 
they're not actually there's no actually obligation to do that under this act. Um, and so this hasn't yet passed. Perhaps there should be some consideration given to whether there should be some changes to this, yep. um, which would provide some capacity for, you know, the person who shows up, right, the parent or the school principal or the security guard. I mean, imagine that. Yeah. Let's say you're the small business person and somebody is sitting right outside the door of your business um, smoking drugs. Right. Yeah. Uh, and the security guard goes up and says, "Hey, move along." Or the store owner, "Hey, get lost. You can't be doing that here." Well, indeed, you can, <laughs> because of the way they've drafted Bill Thirty Four. What so about bylaw? If they stop, they're they're good to go. Well, this is a provincial system. There, if they're a peace officer, the issue would be: is the person a peace officer? Okay, so that's right? the distinction. So okay. if you're a, if you're a, if you're a or police officer, it is defined here. Mm-hmm. Police officer means a person who, under the Police Act, is a provincial constable a municipal constable, or a designated constable. Hmm. So it's a narrower definition. I shouldn't have said peace officer, because that can be a broader definition. There's some people that are peace officers that may not meet this definition of police officer. So they've defined it. It's got to be one of those people that shows up and tells you to stop doing whatever you're doing in the doorway or on the swing set or whatever. And then at that point, you have the option to leave. Uh, or stop doing it, right? So it would be like, it's not the equivalent, and that's the other line that was used, saying, oh, this just brings it in accordance with uh, liquor or smoking regulations. That is not how the Liquor Control Licensing Act or the smoking rules apply. You can't just be, you're not allowed to, anyways, uh, be sitting on the swing set drinking beer in the middle of the day. That is already an offense before the police tell you to, hey, stop that, right? Otherwise, the state of affairs would be, you'd be able to sit around drinking, you know, in the park, and maybe we should allow that. I don't know, right? But you can't uh, just be drinking away in the park uh, uh, until the police show up and tell you stop doing that, Um, right? And so that's what they've done here, and that is entirely inconsistent with how this has been portrayed. So I think it's really important people know what's in fact going on, uh, and it's uh, more so when there are, there's a misleading press release about it and the government statements about what they're doing just don't conform with the legislation that they've introduced. So that's the uh, Bill 34, the Restricting Public Consumption of Illegal Substances Act, or they could add to the end of the title, maybe bracket, if asked by a piece of police officer, close bracket. Uh, otherwise, you're, you're still good to go. Oh, how is this real? But you're absolutely right. No, I totally see it. Michael, I really appreciate your insight because I was one of those observers who didn't realize what the legal implications of this were actually limited to. Well, they, they, they told you that it did more than it did, so yeah. that's hardly surprising, right? All right, let's take our first break. Legally speaking, we'll be back in just a moment with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Legally Speaking continues with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, up next on our agenda, I'm reading here, a $10 million award against the province for, quote, misfeasance in public office. What is that? It's a rarely used tort, uh, which provides uh, that you could sue a government uh, for that tort, the misfeasance in public office. And there are two ways in which uh, that can occur. Uh, it's been described by the Supreme Court of Canada as a Category A or Category B. Category A would be involves conduct of a that is specifically intended to injure a person or class of persons, that is to say a government decision, or Category B involves a public officer who acts with knowledge, both that he or she has no power 
to do the act contemplated, and the act is likely to cause injury to the plaintiff. So that's the cause of action. That's the tort, the basis upon which this lawsuit was brought and succeeded. And the background of it is that uh, a man formed a company uh, and wanted to develop a run-of-the-river uh, hydro project. Hmm. And the judge describes what that means. And the, a, a run-of-the-river hydro project is different from like the uh, big projects that BC Hydro might build with a big dam, right? Um, and instead, what it does is it diverts water from a river or stream, runs it through a turbine, and then puts it right back into the river or stream. So it doesn't like block the river and make a big lake. It just uses the water as it flows by to generate electricity. That's the concept of it. Hmm. And this uh, fellow uh, was interested in doing that. And in fact, uh, when he started the process, BC Hydro had put out a call for people to do exactly that. And we're now actually right back doing that. That was from 2005, uh, where there was this uh, uh, call for people to produce uh, power privately and sell it to BC Hydro because they realized they were going to have a shortage of power, right? We're, in fact, going to be doing that again because they determined that we're going to have a shortage of electrical power in BC. And he uh, entered into an agreement with BC Hydro. They said, we'll buy your power if you can uh, produce it in this way. And so the man went and uh, applied for the required permits to do that. And he needed two permits, one under the Land Act to be able to use Crown land to build uh, the run of the river uh, generation facility. Mm -hmm. And then he also needed to apply under the Water Act for permission to use the water while it ran through the run of the river setup. Hmm. And he made that uh, those applications and various, as you might imagine, forms and pieces of paper went back and forth, and things were all appearing to be on track. Uh, and both of those acts have somebody referred to as the statutory decision maker, like the person in government who is in charge of giving permission or not giving permission to use crown land or use water for various purposes, right? Mm -hmm. And the act would set out criteria for that and considerations and environmental considerations, all of those kinds of things. And indeed, having gone through the, all the various hoops <laughs> that those things would entail, uh, the, one of the statutory decision makers uh, called him and told him that uh, they were feeling comfortable. We were feeling, the language was, we were feeling comfortable in issuing the required permits. So everything seemed to be on track. Uh, and then for some reason, uh, politics intervened, hmm. uh, and the uh, in the form of the then minister uh, and assistant deputy minister, uh, and it appears that what happened was that they had uh, some communication with the Squamish Nation, uh, who told them that they didn't like the idea of this project, didn't support it, uh, they had objections to it based on uh, apparently a cultural practice involving bathing in the river. Hmm. Uh, and they thought that the using the water first to generate electricity would interfere with that in some way. Oh. And so a political decision was made uh, based on, it would appear, political considerations concerning, concerning the Squamish nation and their objection to it. Interesting. Uh, and so the after that uh, initial approval, yes, we're comfortable doing this, by the person who's supposed to make the decision, a telephone call came from the then assistant deputy minister, followed up by a letter saying, no, yeah, your application is denied. Hmm. Uh, and that's the basis, that's the factual foundation for this claim 
that the decision to say no uh, was a political decision that wasn't made in accordance with the requirements of those acts, the Land Act and the then Water Act, which would have its own set of criteria for when you approve these things and don't approve it. And part of this, of course, is that we live in a system where we have the rule of law, right? We have laws that would set out criteria and how decisions are should be to be made, right? And the expectations is that decisions would be made in accordance with the law, right? Yeah. So that we can organize, you know, you can organize your life accordingly. You can look at the, you know, land act. Okay, what do I have to do if I want to use some land for this? Okay, I'm going to do this and meet this requirement of this test. Okay, here I go, right? Yeah. And the expectation is that government officials would make a decision in accordance with the law. Okay, there are five criteria here. Let's look at what you've got here. One, two, three. Yeah, okay, you meet all of them. Congratulations, there's your permit, right? Yes. You don't want government's decisions being made on the basis of capricious considerations or political thoughts or whether I like you or don't like you or anything else, right? You want lawful decisions in accordance with law, right? That's what allows us to all live in a non-topsy-turvy world. Uh, But that's not what happened here. And the judge in the case accepted that, indeed, this political intervention uh, and decision to deny uh, the requirement after the person who should have been making the decision said, yes, this appears to, you know, we're comfortable doing this. It looks like you've met the, the, the legal criteria. The political consideration of, well, we're concerned about this subjection by the Squamish nation, that is not one of the criteria under the Land Act or the then Water Act. That's just not there, right? Um, and so the judge found uh, that the political decision to deny the application, apparently on that basis, um, was indeed met the criteria for that second form uh, of that tort, the tort of misfeasance in public office. And that's where you have a public official who knows that you don't have authority to do what you're doing. You do it anyways, right? And uh, you know that what you're doing there is likely to cause injury to the plaintiff. In this case, you sure you can't build your project you've been working on for several years. Uh, and so that's what happened. That's what the judge found happened. Political interference for uh, desire to meet political wishes concerning this First Nation. And so the judge then went on to analyze, okay, well, how much money did this small company, it was, we had one person, right, the fellow who was doing all of this, he was the only owner, director, and everything else. Now, how, did, how much did he lose? And the court concluded that if all of this uh, went as it uh, should have uh, gone, right, in terms of how much money would you make present valued uh, for the production of power from this facility, minus the costs, the amount lost was $56.25 million. And the judge then went on to take into account the fact that there are, of course, contingencies in life. Other things could have gone wrong. You know, yeah. maybe the, you would have had some problem building it, or maybe prices would have gone up to build it, or the, you know, how much you got to the power could have gone down. And took all of that into consideration and concluded the net result of the province making a decision the way it made it was that this man lost out on or this company owned by this one man lost out on $10.125 million. And so that's what the province is going to pay him um, as a result of making a decision in that fashion. So I thought it was interesting to know, first of all, about that tort and that requirement uh, and what the implications can be. It's not a political free-for-all. 
right? When you're a minister, you don't get to just sort of make whatever decision, and this applies more, the, more to more than just uh, provincial ministers, you don't get to just make whatever decision you think would be a good idea or whatever you think might be politically popular or expedient. You've got to make decisions in accordance with the law. And if you do otherwise uh, and you cause a harm, then this could be the result, and so the public should have to pay the man the $10 million he lost out on yeah, because of making a decision for that reason in that way. All right. You and I have two and a half minutes left today. Sure. Final case is a uh, case out of the Supreme Court of Canada, and it's a case that uh, deals with bans on publication in criminal cases. Hmm. Uh, and the particular section at issue is Section 648 of the Criminal Code. And that's a section that provides for a ban on publication of uh, evidence in a criminal case, which is led when the jury is not in the room. And the idea there is that you could have a judge deciding whether, for example, some piece of evidence is properly admissible, like should the jury be taking it into consideration when deciding the case. Um, and if the uh, that could be broadcast and published uh, for the jury to just read about when they were out of the room, that would all be pretty well meaningless, right? You'd have juries making decisions based on all sorts of stuff that might be illegal or unreliable or whatever it might be. But the narrow issue here, and I should say that ban of publication runs only until the jury goes out to deliberate, because at that point, they're not going to be listening to the radio or reading the newspaper, and so you can publish and broadcast all of that information. So it's not a, a keep it secret, it's just don't publish it and broadcast it until the jury's off doing their uh, business and they're not going to be influenced by that. The issue the Supreme Court of Canada decided was, does that ban on publication, which is automatic and occurs in every uh, case with a jury, does that apply to things that and evidence that is led prior to the jury being picked? Because that happens. You could have issues that are like legal issues that are getting sorted out before the jury's impaneled. Because, for example, it might mean that the case doesn't have to proceed or it might impact on how long they're going to be required for. So you'd want to decide them first. And the issue was, does that ban on publication or the delay in publication impact on that kind of stuff as well? And the decision was, yes, it does. And the considerations would be things like, um, you know, one argument would be, well, would, are these people going to pay any attention to it if they don't even know they're on a jury yet? Maybe not. But the modern reality, of course, is that if something is published or broadcast, it's not going to be too hard if somebody looked for it to wind up seeing all sorts of stuff that may be unreliable or inadmissible. And we, we have to balance the uh, desire for transparency and the open court principle against the requirement for trial fairness. And so in this case, the Supreme Court of Canada found that indeed, that ban or at least delay in publication does extend uh, to evidence which was led before the jury got picked in order to make sure that trials are fair. So that's uh, the latest on Section 648, which I'm sure you were you know, tossing and turning, wondering how that might play out. But that's the latest from the Supreme Court of Canada. Michael Mulligan with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. I learn new things every week, Michael. It's greatly appreciated. Until next time. Thanks so much. Have a great day. All right.